Well, officially, happy Labor Day weekend. You are part of the elite group, myself included, that has no plans this weekend, so welcome. Glad you're here at church. And Labor Day weekend, right, Labor Day is a federal holiday where we, we honor and we recognize the hard work of American laborers, of, of you, of those who have worked really hard to contribute to the development and to the prosperity and to all the achievements of this country. And to celebrate and to honor all of our hard work, we take a day of rest. The great part about this rest is that we put it on a Monday, so we get a three-day weekend. And then the way math works, then those other four days are now the work week, so we've got an extended weekend and a shortened work week. We get a four-day work week. This is actually kind of a movement right now for some places to move to a permanent four-day work week. There, there's a, a proposed bill in, in Pennsylvania that is, is uh, proposing to move the whole state to a four-day work week. And in Forney, Texas, right outside of Dallas, they just announced this week that they're moving all of their city employees and city services officially to a four-day work week. And even the United Auto Workers Association is, is trying to negotiate a four-day work week. Now, mind you, I was talking to some folks after the previous service. One of the responses was, yeah, I'd be all for it, but, you know, that, that 10 hours, then they've got 10-hour days. And, and some of these are, no, they're going to 32 hours. It's not just cramming 40 hours into four. It's lowering the workload. Because the idea behind this is that we can get so much more done now than we ever used to be able to. We don't need to fill up our five-day work week. We can do all the things that we have done in merely four days. Now, that five-day work week was already kind of like a lowering of the standard that had been for a long time at the six-day pattern and one day off. The, the five-day work week came about, uh, in the United States at least, it was in the early 1900s, and it was this cotton mill up in the Northeast that had both Jewish and Christian employees, and both of them wanted to be off on their respective Sabbath day. Well, the Jewish Saturday, Sabbath day is Saturday. The Christian Sabbath day is Sunday. So this employer gave them both Sabbaths. And they had a five-day work week and a two-day weekend. And then later, Henry Ford established that as a, as a standard practice. And eventually, it became law. Now, the idea here is that since we can do all of this stuff, we don't need to work as much. But the, the original work week is not four-day or five-day. It's, like I said, the six-day. And this was something that was actually established and created by God. Back to our scripture verse it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. Then God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy because on that day, he stopped all his work of creation. So whether you're for a six-day or five-day or four-day work week, the, the point that we see that God established and that we continue to recognize is that at some point, we all need to work. It's just something that has to be done. In fact, that's exactly what God did when he put Adam and Eve in the garden. How many of you, when you think of the Garden of Eden, you may think of this utopia and a paradise where you, Adam and Eve probably sat around with like a drink with maybe a little tiny umbrella in it and just relaxed on the beach. 
They definitely had their rest, but the Garden of Eden, they, they were created to work it, to tend it. Our scripture reading continues and says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to farm the land and to take care of it. See, Adam and Eve weren't made to sit there and relax all day. They were made to, to rake, maybe to shovel a little bit or to, to do something with their hands, to till, till and tend the ground. They were created to work in a perfect creation. The idea here is that God didn't just care about the spiritual connection, the spiritual relationship. He also cared about the physical. He cared about Adam and Eve. He cared about his creation. There's a, a philosopher you've probably heard of by the guy by the name of uh, Plato. Plato, back a long time ago, had this idea that the spiritual is actually all that matters. The spiritual is where it's at. And the, the flesh and the body and the physical are kind of just a necessary evil. The body is just kind of this, this thing to carry around the soul. But the, the spirit's where it's at. This idea even crept into the early church hundreds of years later where some early Christians were starting to believe this, this false teaching called Gnosticism. Um, fancy word for the week right there. And this, uh, this Gnostic teaching said that, yeah, we don't, we, don't need, we don't need the physical. The physical's gross. We just need the spiritual. And there was actually like a, a, a repulsion re toward the physical and the flesh. The problem with that is that they started to have to view their theology in light of this belief and said, well, a good and perfect God would never come into this kind of grotesque casing. So they said, well, they denied the virgin birth. They denied that Jesus was born. And then they would deny the, the crucifixion because it was, it was just too grotesque and even death. And so that's kind of what part of the Apostles' Creed is speaking against is this early heresy that says, you know, that, that, that all the flesh, it doesn't matter at all. That's why in the, in the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's refuting this false teaching. It says, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It's to say, you know, God loves his creation as well as his spiritual connection to his people. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. God puts them in there to work it. And when God, God specifically talks about Eve and he says, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. That's very true. Anytime a guy's left alone on the weekend, it doesn't go well. He says, I will make a helper who is right for him. Now this word helper isn't subservient. It's, it's like partner. It's co-laborers. In fact, the same word for helper is sometimes applied to God himself. It says, Psalms say, joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper. Man and woman are to care for and steward creation and work was part of the original design and was a blessing. So if that's the case, if work is supposed to be a blessing, why do we have such a problem with it? Why do we come home at the end of the, day, end of the day exhausted and wiped and just want to sit on the couch for the night? Why do we long for the weekend or long for the next day off? Why is it so burdensome if it was meant to be a blessing? Well, once sin entered the creation, everything changed. 
See, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, went against his will, went against his design for them, and that brought sin to all of creation, and that affected and infected everything, including work. God is is talking to Adam, and he says that because you've disobeyed me, there's some consequences. He says the ground is cursed because of you. Through hard work, you will eat from it every day of your life. The ground will grow thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat wild plants. By the sweat of your brow, you will produce food to eat until you return to the ground because you were taken from it. You are dust, and you will return to dust. What began as a blessing has now become a burden. What began as as a, a, a commission from God has now become a curse. All that hard work that Adam and Eve had learned to do in a perfect garden will now bear less fruit, they'll be less productive, and now they're gonna, it's going to be painful. They're, they're, there's going to be thorns, so they're going to get poked. They're going to bleed. They're going to have calluses. Work has now become a lot harder. And, and this idea, God uses this, this agricultural, agrarian example, right, and says, Work will be hard when, you, when there's thorns and thistles on the ground. But just because you and I may not be farmers or may not tend the land, it doesn't mean that curse still doesn't apply to our work. How many times have you tried to, to do something and just felt like everything's fighting against you? You're writing a paper and you just have constant writer's block and the things you say end up being wrong and your citations are wrong and everything you're doing is just messing up. Or you're trying to get to work on time and the alarm clock malfunctioned and you forgot to, to move the laundry from the washer to the dryer and then the car won't start and then you finally get it started and you just run into Beltway 8 and I-10 traffic all the way there. Sometimes it feels like we are trying to jog and run a race up a steep hill and that every effort, everything we're doing is just pushing against us that we just come at roadblocks every step of the way. Friends, that, that's absolutely true. That's how it is. The curse of sin and upon work specifically affects our work too. We're also affected by this curse of sin because we end up putting work in a place that it, it shouldn't be. Sometimes we, we find our identity or our worth in our work. Sometimes we find our value in what defines us in what we do. Sometimes we put it on such a pedestal that we sacrifice our family for it. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't work hard. That's not to say that we can't, there's going to be times when we've got a lot of extra things to do or a big project. But the, the problem comes in when we find our self-worth in what we do instead of finding our self-worth in God. He gives us our identity, not our work. The other thing that we end up doing is, is, is then, because of this curse, because we don't know how to handle it very well, we don't rest well. We don't, not just take time off, but we don't find a peaceful, quiet, solitude rest with the Lord. That's part of what that Sabbath was. That wasn't just taking a break only. It was also finding rest in Christ, 
finding peace in his word, in his love, enjoying him, enjoying people around us, connecting with one another. What was supposed to be a blessing has now become a curse and something that we're trying to fight against, something that we decided to go from six to five days a week now to four days a week, and who knows, maybe eventually three days a week. If you notice, God didn't give us an out because of the curse. He didn't say, well, I know it's going to be hard so you don't have to do it anymore. He said, no, you you still got to do your job. You got to work and it's going to be really rough. It's going to be real rough. Now, I've been talking about work this whole time as jobs, paid jobs, physical, things like that. And that's definitely a part of it. Work is actually so much bigger than that. So sometimes we think of work, we can put these, these jobs and these kinds of things, these callings in, a, um, in specific categories. So you might look at it as like sacred and secular. And the idea that some people have is that there are some jobs or some callings or some things that are more holy, more spiritual, more sacred, more of God. And so you may think of something like a pastor or a church worker or a priest, like those kinds of jobs are, are the holy jobs. Those are things of God. But the thing like a, a waiter or, or uh, an accountant or, or a business owner, like those things are over here in this category. Those aren't of God. That's not how God looks at work at all. He doesn't look at those things like this and separate them out. He says, no, I give you giftings. I've given you so many things. I am God and I love you, my children, And I've got a lot for you, so I'm going to give you lots of different gifts. And sometimes he he gives these to us, and sometimes it is a job, but other times it's not. It's called a calling. A calling is, is when something is given to you for the betterment of others. It's this idea that you have something about you that is unique that has been given directly to you and is only for you that God wants to use to love and bless those people around you. Another word for this is vocation. We all have lots of different vocations. So for example, for me, if somebody were to say, hey, describe yourself in just one word. What is your vocation? And I said, pastor, I'd be neglecting the vocation that I have as husband or father or friend or son and many of the other things. Each and every one of you has a gifting and a calling on your life from and by God. It may not be to be a pastor. It may not be to be an accountant. Some of these things in your life could just be the mere ability to listen and to love and to empathize and to be that solid person that people go to. To be that person who people want to be around and who trust. God, God doesn't always call us to be paid for our vocations. But he does call us to use them for others. 
since, since all of these vocations are a gift from God, none of them are more important than the other one when it comes to your life. Just because you have a, a vocation of being a mother, but you may not over here, doesn't mean that either one is different. They're just, or either one is better. They're just different. And God has put you where you are in this time, in this time in history, in this city, in this church, in your family and neighborhood because he loves you, he wants you there, and he's going to use you. The way that we're supposed to think about this and live out our vocations can be seen in our Colossians verse. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, that whatever you do is everything. Whether you parent or whether you are a CEO, whether you are a custodian or whether you are the big leader over here, whether you're a business owner, whatever you are in one or any of your vocations, you are called to do it in the name of Jesus. That's how we all lead and that's how we all live out of our vocations. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. No matter how good of a financial guru you are or how good at repairing cars you are, God doesn't really need those services for himself, right? Like you don't need to go change God's oil. He's good. God doesn't need our good works. But our neighbor does. God says that I'm not going to be there to step in and sit there with somebody with an Excel spreadsheet to help them with their finances, but I am going to work through you to do that exact thing. When you ask somebody for help with something and then somehow somebody shows up in your life who has that exact proficiency, you thank God for it. That's God putting that person in your life to love you and to help you, to serve you, to use their vocation as a blessing to you. This is how, this is how work is redeemed. Because see, it was supposed to be perfect. Now it's a curse. But God redeems it by using each other to love and serve and help. Now to be clear, all the work that we do, while it's a blessing to others, no amount of hard effort or work that we do can, can save us right? It's not this kind of thing where we can work harder and harder and harder and maybe God will like us more and more and we'll gain more of his favor. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing we can do to be saved and choose this. This this is not how this works. Our work is for our society and for others and our family and our community, not for our salvation. Because see, that work has already been taken care of. See, Jesus decided and said, because of humanity's calamity, I'm going to step down and fix it. Back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin and bring curse upon all of creation, we read that God gave them, said there's going to be consequences. But before he gave the consequences, he gave a promise as he's talking to Satan, the deceiver, the one who who led Adam and Eve into sin, God says to him, because you've done this, I will make you 
and the woman hostile toward each other. I will make your descendants and her descendant hostile toward each other. He will crush your head, Satan, even though you will bruise his heel. Before God gave the consequences, he gave the promise. And he said, all of creation is now marred. All of creation is now harmed. All of creation is now infected. But I'm going to send somebody to take care of that. Because you failed in your work, I'm going to send somebody to succeed in his work. This is a promise of Jesus. This is telling that God would send somebody to fulfill the work that we could not do, that Jesus would come down and that he would be born as a human being and that he would live a perfect life, something Adam and Eve could not do. And, and he would go to the cross and he would carry sin upon him and he would destroy and kill sin so it doesn't have eternal consequences. He would take that sin to death with him. He would do this work, so we did not have to do that kind of work. Because we couldn't. We're helpless. And then he was raised to life. And he did a work there that we could never do again. And he rose from death, defeating death and giving us life. So the good news is, we can't be saved by our works. There's nothing we can do, but we are saved by Jesus' work. We're saved by his work on the cross. And the good news is that he's still not done. He will be coming back. He, he will be taking this sin-infected creation and making everything new again. Putting it back to how it was supposed to be. And for those who have gone before us, those who are right now with God in spirit, he will also bring them back to us as well. And we'll have spirit and body reunited, perfected in a glorious creation where we bask in the light of Christ. The work that he did is saving work good work and he will make sure that we are with him for eternity that we are with fellow believers for eternity and where we rejoice in the work that Jesus did for us let's pray Heavenly Father we give thanks to you for sending your son Jesus to do the work that we never could do, for living and dying and rising again and bringing us into right relationship with you that was torn and destroyed in the garden. Help us to live out of our identity in Christ, to not make our work our identity. Help us to find rest in Christ. Please lead us and guide us for those things you've put on our hearts and on our spirits. Please show us what you want us to do, how we can use the gifts and talents you've given us to love and serve others. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.